Hey, thank you for joining us for Under the Water Tower, a ministry of Fellowship Baptist. Located under the city water tower on Mormon Mill Road in beautiful Marble Falls, Texas. We don't just love the Bible. We love talking about the Bible and talking about how the Bible informs our life in this world. Recording here in the Sanctuary of Fellowship Baptist are... Joni Wallach. Daryl Fishbeck. And I'm Jamie Greening. Uh, so, hey, someone's missing. Who's missing? Where's Misty? Mm. Oh, that's right. Misty's not here. Misty's missing because Misty misses. She's uh, probably having snacks. Snacks. She's the snack queen who usually makes sure that we have stuff. We had uh, croissants and bagels last week because of her. Uh, and with biscotti, I think, is what she has. Yes, she does. Um, she's not here uh, because she's with grandkids. Grandkids. Um, that means she's pretty old, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Are you older than her or is she older than you? Actually, I don't know. Because you have grandkids, okay, too. Okay, we're focusing on Misty right now. So. <laughs> Joni and I aren't in that no, category no unless, you guys, unless you got something I don't no, know about. No. I, no grandkids. So what's the, what's the, as someone who has grandkids, uh, go ahead and chew your snack. Uh, what, I do have my snack here today. What is the great big appeal to it? I mean, I don't have grandkids. What's the thing that would make you flaunt all of your responsibilities and shuck all your jobs to go deal with grandkids? I suppose, this is going to sound like I'm defending Misty now. She's the one that's not here. I suppose it's because when you have grandkids, you realize they're the most perfect, cutest things in all of the world. And also you get to send them back once you're done with them. Okay. <laughs> Okay. I just know that when, when we took our kids to go visit my parents after, when they were little and they made that first trip and every subsequent trip after that, I would look at my parents and say, who are you people? Because the rules were always different for my children than they were for me when I was growing up. Yeah, like snacks, snacks anytime. Yeah, goldfish anytime, chocolate anytime. Um Ice cream for breakfast, whatever. Of course, it's exactly. All good stuff. You know, cake and ice cream for supper. And I'm like, wait, 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 when did this happen? Or the uh, <laughs> breaking things. If I broke something growing up, it was like, oh no, it was the end of the world. My kid breaks something at my mom's house. Oh, it's no big deal. We'll just super glue it. It's fine. It's just all the rules change. I don't the understand. furniture too. Like when growing up, like the furniture's for sitting. Now, what is it? Like it's a trampoline park. You know. Exactly what it is. Double back flip off the couch, whatever. I always stuff. think it's because it's because grandparents are getting old, and they're trying to get into heaven, <laughs> and this is the way they're trying to do it. Uh, I don't know. That's my that's my guess. But here we are today, still working through Colossians. I want to first off make a huge um, statement that uh, last week in the podcast I completely blew it in trying to remember the Hebrews passage um, you know, in which Jamie forgot one of the most beautiful and significant passages in all the Bible, Hebrews 11.1. 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So if you've listened to these two back to back, you'll say, hey, he, someone needs to tell him, I have been told. I know. Uh, our verses, though, today are Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Who wants to read those? I'll take it today, hopefully. I didn't hopefully. Look. Either you are or you <laughs> are not. Do you want my large print Bible? I may. I do have my reading glasses you, on you here. You guys can't see this, but, but Daryl's arms, he's holding the Bible. Anyway, out. we're going to look at Colossians <laughs> now. Far, far away. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Last one's a long sentence. I didn't I didn't get enough breath for that last one. There's a lot of commas in there. Do you want to do it again? No, right? no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> you don't want to try it again? A fresh take on that? No, no. Let's carry on. So the one of the things we always like to do first is break down the text and kind of think about what we're looking at here. This is some high language. Um, 15 through 20, uh, where we started with 15 and then finishing with verse 20, those sections, and most of your Bibles may have that broken off as paragraphs, those of you listening, uh, that has often been conjectured as a, some sort of a, a hymn uh, that... Uh, Paul may be lifted and stuck in there, uh, a poem. Uh, it's got some, a lot of re- repetitive things going in it. Um, one thought is that it was actually maybe something used by Paul's opponents. And what he did was he stole one of their songs <laughs> and reworked it, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, I don't know. I kind of feel like Paul, Paul may have, it may be a hymn, but maybe Paul wrote it. I don't know if he lifted it. Hmm. I think the, the bias there is always um, by scholars that Paul can't write anything pretty. And so if it's pretty and well put <laughs> together, it can't be his. <laughs> so, so I just imagine if Paul were Poor sitting Paul. with us, he'd be like, what? I can do things too. I mean, look at all the things that uh, 1 Corinthians 13, gorgeous, Paul wrote. Uh, the whole book of Philippians, to me, is gorgeous. So you get uh, shining like stars in the sky. It's very poetic. Uh, but also that the, the great Philippians 2 passage is poetic. Romans has great high language. Uh, who has the mind of Christ? You know, uh, all of these great things. I, I always have feel bad for Paul, one writer to another, that anytime it's pretty, they say, <laughs> Paul couldn't have written this. That's like if there's music going on, and they say, well, this can't be, this can't be Daryl singing. He must have stolen it from somewhere exactly. else. There's no way he could have done that. So I just want you to know that it's structured. I think that it probably is a highly structured individual piece, but that doesn't mean Paul didn't write it. He could have written it and stuck it in there himself. People do that all yeah. the time. He was in prison, so, you know, he had time to do things, you know. Learn how to uh, <laughs> you know, I, write poetry. I didn't yeah. think about that. Well, our, our idea is that he wrote Colossians from Rome under house arrest. So maybe he's got lots of free time. He's playing with words, picking word order. He's got the little thesaurus over here. 
Well, He's like, not? hey, Timothy, how does it sound? Was it Timothy? Well, t- who, yeah. wrote, who wrote with him? Or who well, was like. Epaphras is the one who delivered it. So maybe Epaphras is the one he's running off of, or, or Dear Dr. Luke, or <laughs> someone like that. That's funny. Dear Dr. Luke. I like that idea of him in prison. You know, he's swapping a um, pack of Marlboros for some <laughs> more paper so he can work on his poetry. <laughs> um, I've seen way too much Shawshank um, so key words here, you've got um, some huge words jump off the page at us. One is the firstborn. Did you guys catch that? Let's see, it's in verse right off the 15, bat there in 15. And then it comes back again uh, to us. Uh, is it Firstborn from the dead, verse 18. Firstborn from the dead. It, that's repeated. Uh, what's the problem with that word? Prototakos. What's the problem with that firstborn? What, what jumps off at you? Well, I mean, if God is infinite and Jesus is God, he, he wasn't technically born. It's the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, if you think of his incarnation, I guess you could say it that way. But from when you start talking about creation, he's the firstborn. Um, it, it almost The first thing I hear is that there's a starting point. Um, so that was just the first thing that popped in my head. I think it's good that there's a starting point. And we usually think of it as a starting point where he's the firstborn, and there was a time when he wasn't born. Right. Right, yeah. That's one of the, the problems with this, this word. Um, now, does that the idea match our theology? I just feel like he's always been, you know. If he's God, then he's, he's infinite, you know. No beginning, no ending. But maybe it's firstborn just in the sense that we understand that word. Not um, like it's not an afterthought. I remember going to camp and and hearing, um, you know, you are so bad and you sinned so much. Then God had to create Jesus to fix you. And um, (laughs) that's not the way any of this works. God had to create Jesus to fix you. Yeah. That's... That's an interesting thought. Yeah. You know what? Whatever camp you were going you to, let's not send our children to that camp. Trauma camp. That's right. Also known as Baptist camp. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, the, you get the Jesus is going to, uh, the firstborn, uh, like it was plan B. Right. Before, everything was perfect, but then things went astray, so now we got to have Jesus. Um, the firstborn here of all creation is one problematic thing. Firstborn of the dead, though, I think gives us a sense of how we understand that, that word. Uh, that's in verse 18. Was Jesus the first person to ever rise from the dead? Well, no. There was, I mean, even preaching in Elijah, uh, or, or in Kings, about Elijah raising the boy. And you remember just, that one. Yes, <laughs> I told you. You're, we pay Ooh. attention. <laughs> I don't know. Especially when you Sunday, hear it twice. Sunday, there was lots of yawning going on. I mean, there was just lots of yawning going on. Um, yeah, so that's a, a good Old Testament. Lazarus comes to mind in right. yeah. Jesus' ministry. The, uh, there's the several indications of people coming back to life in, in Jesus' ministry. Um, so he's not the first one to ever come back to life. So therefore, and Paul has to know about this, right? Therefore, if Paul understands that and he uses the word firstborn, then what can firstborn also mean? It's not time-wise. It's not linear. It's positional. So Jesus has, 
as the firstborn. He has the highest place in all of creation Didn't as opposed to time. Use the word preeminent in here somewhere. At the end of that, yeah, pre everything he he's might pre be preeminent. Pre right. So that's the he's using all these language words. Language words? Aren't all words <laughs> language words? He's using all this language to heap up a, an argument, an, an emphasis that Christ is um, the highest place in the universe, um, and which is not about who was born when. Um, besides, you get into logical problems with firstborn of creation. If he's the firstborn of creation, um, John tells us he's the only begotten son, which is a different word, not the same word. Uh, but if you're the only begotten, how can you be the firstborn? Because the firstborn mm, indicates there's, there's a second other born, right. there's a second born. I refer to my oldest child as the firstborn, but that's only because there's a second born. So that you get logical problems with that. How does this translate? How does firstborn, how does it, does it translate straight firstborn? Like, is that how it translates? Yeah, first, first, firstborn is a pretty good rendering of it, but just like with us and all things, words take on different meanings as they're used. Right. So you think about firstborn as, uh, in that culture, as a place of preeminence. I think that's the metaphor he's going for. Well, and you know, I've heard someone recently talk uh, about metaphors and things like that. I mean, if God is truly omnipotent and omniscient and above all, then, then he's really beyond our language. And that means we have to try and find words that grasp at describing him, although they may not fully carry the weight of things. And so I don't know that this is one of those specific situations, but I think it that we have to, to, to realize that our language cannot contain God. Yeah, and, we, yeah, and you get that with the Trinity, right? Mm-hmm. When you start trying to describe what's going on with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the moment you realize the poverty of our language. Because my mind can almost get there. When I just think about it, just purely thinking it through, my mind can almost get to three personalities, but they're the same substance the same godness and they're unified you know hero israel the lord our god the lord is one if i just think that through i can almost get there but then when i start putting words to that well the words fall apart right the words don't fit that sounds like half of my brain power because i have these incredibly eloquent ideas running or in the shower and then if I were to sit down with a pen and paper or at my laptop, it's like I feel really dumb because I, it's like can't get it from my head out my mouth. But do you have good penmanship? No. See, I have poor penmanship, and more than once I have written down something that was a great idea, just like three or four words. <laughs> I'm like, I, and I'm thinking I will come back mm-hmm. to this later and develop it, and I come back to it the next day, the next week, and literally cannot read my own handwriting. <laughs> I, can, I can help you with that, the handwriting part. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's the red Sharpie you usually teaching use. skills. I've uh, upgraded to the white pencils. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, all those things going on with the, the metaphors, and that's a good little trip to go down. you got textual variants in here. Probably the most standing out to me textual variant in this section of scriptures, verse 19. Uh, my, my rendering, the ESV, which is the preferred, uh, reads this, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And I bet most all of your renderings have the exact same thing in them. 
The problem is there's no phrase of God in the actual verse. I'm looking at it right here in the Greek, and there's no, there's no of God there at all. Uh, the, it really is just in Him, meaning in Jesus, not in God, so to speak, as the Father, but in Him, uh, all the fullness was pleased to dwell. Uh, um, fullness is such a big word. <laughs> what fullness is in Christ? Well, one of the things that I, I came across and read was the, the fullness of everything God had in mind for us, for mankind as humans. And so, in, in essence, Jesus kind of contains the fullness of what it is, of maybe what it was intended to be human. I don't know. Just kind of a thought on that. Uh, we like that thought, that okay. what Jesus does is he um, perfects humanity with the fullness of it's supposed to be. But at the same time, he's also all of that it means to be anything is in mm. him. And that's kind of where Paul's going with this language is that in Christ is everything. Uh, the fullness of all creation. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the fullness of creation. In fact, meaning itself is located in who Christ is. That's how I kind of read it. That, that, to me, it, it reads better without the of God. Mm -hmm. It's just, in, 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 it was pleasing. It was a good idea for all of the fullness, the richness, the variance, the, the embodiment of all that is good in the world and then creation is in Christ. Um, that's different. That's a different re understanding, I think, of who Jesus is than to say he's perfect mm -hmm. or he was sinless. Mm -hmm. we, we really, we hunker down. And I, I, for the record, for those of you keeping score at home, <laughs> I do believe Jesus lived a sinless life and he was a perfect sacrifice. But it's not just that he kept from sinning. He was the fullness of all that is good. It's not just a negative. He didn't do things. He embodied all the good as well. Uh, and because of that, he does redefine for us what it means to be human. I think, too, we, we put our worldly, worldly take on what is good. Mm. And for God, it's so different. Um, you think God defines good differently? No, I just think th just the fullness. Like I think we have a limited view on fullness being in the world. You kind of read in my mind because I was sitting here thinking uh, when we talk about sinlessness and per perfection of Jesus, it's very easy to move into a performance mentality. Okay, I've got to mimic somehow what Jesus did from an external perspective. I've got to have these moral codes or you do this or you don't do that, um, which may play into it. But I, I think what Paul is, is kind of encouraging us here is in, in Christ is, is everything that we need, and, and we. It, it's more of a relational identity of mimicking the connection he had with the Father, the life that he had in him through God, of learning to engage in that relationship. And then the goodness becomes more of an overflow of who you are um, rather than, okay, i got to jump through these hoops. And I use that phrase a lot, but that was, that was so much of my perception of God, Jesus, Christianity for my whole life was viewing it from a performance-based situation as opposed to 
the fullness that's there, engaging in that, engaging in the relationship, engaging in the source of things that are there. You have brought to my mind with your conversation a, a, um, a bit of Pauline theology. One of the key things about his writing is he's always talking about in Christ or in him, that we are in him. And perhaps one way that it means to be in him is to be in his fullness mm -hmm. so that we're not deficient. We always feel less than deficient. But when I'm in Christ, it's the amen of God. I, I am all that I need to be in Him. I'm full. Uh, there's no part of my life that's empty when I'm in Him, uh, which keeps us from that performance idea, I think. Right. Absolutely. I think, too, um, a lot of times we, we hear like, oh, just lowly old me, like sinners mm. saved by grace. But, <laughs> but, um, but when we're in Him, like, He thinks much more of us than that. And this is where I think the, the, the text is going. There's some similar phrases, um, Ephesians 1, which we talked last week, is very closely akin to Colossians anyway. But Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 has very similar language to what Paul has here about dominions and rulers and powers and then also that Christ is the head uh, and the head of the church. Uh, similar language. And of course, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 has sort of the same kind of language. Uh, so we're not too far afield. I just think here in Colossians, Paul is far more um, esoteric with the language. It's, he's, he's using some, some of them $5 university <laughs> words here. The whole point of this is Christ is the authority and he's the power. He's not a created being. He's not getting his power from somewhere else and borrowing it. It's all wrapped up in him. And as such, he's the head of the church. So if you had to put a good bow tie on this, that really is where he's going with the whole material. Um, some things stand out of attention, though, just some key concepts. What do you guys have that you see in here that just says, hey... Talk about me for a minute. Joni? Because <laughs> if you don't, I got stuff. You got some Why don't stuff. You I think prime the pump. I don't know. You prime this pump? <laughs> Joni's about to say something. Nope. I, th I think what I said earlier, just um, that, you know, God wasn't, that God, Jesus wasn't the afterthought that hmm. um, really resonates with me, um, knowing that, like, He was our plan. Um, what are you thinking? I am just just really riffing on verse 20. This um, blood of the cross. Uh, making peace by the blood of the cross. Um, that is a powerful phrase, by the way. Just all by itself. Making peace by the blood of the cross. A sacrifice. Um, which gets us to what on earth was going on on the cross anyway. So, so Paul is taking us through, Christ is all these things, right? He's firstborn, he's preeminent, he's the ruler, he's the head. But then he takes us back to what kind of what makes him that is what he did on the cross. And we come to, uh, for lack of a better way of grabbing hold of it, this is atonement, that he has made atonement for us. And you have all these different ideas about how peace is made on the cross. I've got my my little list here uh, that I put together. Uh, I bet some 
somewhere you've heard of the, the penal substitution idea mm -hmm. of atonement. Now that's P-E-N-A-L, uh, as in penal code, uh, that somehow there was a, a crime that was committed uh, and a price had to be paid. The reformers loved that idea. And so for them, what Jesus did, his blood on the cross paid for the crime. And that's how peace was made. Uh, you took a breath. Are you? Did you want to? No, I just was uh, having flashbacks to revivals and things that it preaches that just, really uh, well. Hellfire and brimstone and stuff. That when we start talking about uh, penal substitution and the things like that, and, and and legalities, and then you start telling people how bad and evil and and criminal they are, and this is what Jesus did. It it, it bodes well for invitations, but. Um, for people pleasers like me, it heaps a lot of shame on you. And I think personally robs the cross of its truest power. It's great for invitations and counting numbers and stuff like that. But it, that attitude creates, um, I think, a lot of almost the opposite of what was going on there. So I, you would not get much of an argument out of me, although you need to know that for the last 500 years or so, this has been the dominant yeah. idea of what Paul means by making peace on the cross with his blood, um, the I mean, even as you mentioned invitation, I think the song we learned as a child, he paid a debt he did, did not, not owe. owe. I owed a debt I could not, not pay. I needed someone, someone to wash uh, my which, sins away. And the, the theology behind that is actually accurate, but the implication is that um, God is this great big sheriff in the sky who demanded uh, that the crime be paid for with time and Jesus stepped in. And so you have evil God demanding payment, loving son who steps in. That's the penal substitution idea. Closely related to that is the satisfaction um, uh, of uh, St. Anselm, uh, blessed St. Anselm, uh, who saw a similar sort of thing, but the debt was not a payment, it was honor. Hmm. that God's honor had to be withheld. And so that uh, humanity had struck out against the honor of God. This is a, you can see where this, this is so middle ages. You have offended my honor, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, satisfaction. Turn God into Mick Jagger. <laughs> uh, ransom theory is the other one. Now, that, this one preaches good, too. Satisfaction doesn't preach as well. Penal does. Uh, ransom preaches well. Well, this is where Satan is holding humanity hostage, that he is uh, the, the ruler of all that is. And the, what Jesus does is he comes in and he pays the ransom. That's the blood that he pays on the cross to get our peace, to get our freedom. Uh, what's, the, what's the inherent problem with that? Um, I, just, I just don't understand why... I don't feel like we belong to Satan. It does seem like it gives Satan too much power. A little, mm -hmm. a little too much power, right? Good versus uh, evil. Right. It's a, the yin yang thing, and so and so. If, if 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 the only way to defeat that is to send Jesus in, then Satan has way too much power in this world. And and it, it also plays into a little bit of what Joni was saying, uh, like Jesus is a Plan B or something like that. Um, 
as opposed to you know that that God God was surprised by what happened in the garden or something like that, and then he had to scramble because now Satan held all the cards or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Now Satan's in control. Uh, another uh, way of viewing this verse twenty is uh, the moral influence or the example concept, and this is that by dying on the cross, Jesus made peace in that he gave human beings an example of how we should suffer and, and, and sacrifice for other people. So the peace comes in and we learn how to give of ourselves. Um, and that he made a good example and showed us how to live in love. Sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorites, that's the greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his brothers, his friends. Um, the, uh, the one that I really have been um, drawn to uh, in the last decade or so more than others is this idea of recapitulation in that what happens with it culminates in Christ on the cross but Jesus living this full life all the fullness dwelled in him and he's perfect and sinless at every juncture in his dealings with everyone and then even though he is sinless he pays the price on the cross for sin he is a new Adam, hmm. uh, to use Paul's language in Romans. He's a new Adam who undoes what Adam did. Yeah. He does it right. And so he recapitulates humanity in a way that things are made possible now. And that culminates in his blood on the cross where you know, Adam and Eve messed up and it required blood uh, to be shed uh, because they died and course that's actually the root of atonement goes back to that way in the garden of covering right. of sin uh, I've been drawn by that idea that what Jesus did was as a new Adam showed us the way that we can uh, be more fully human hmm. uh, and, and not be drugged down by that curse recapitulation is one of my um, ones I've been jamming on lately I want to recommend to you a book and I'm Jamie's getting no kickbacks on this. <laughs> I read it about three years ago, and I wonder where it was all my life. Uh, it's called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's written by Fleming Rutledge, which, as names go, if your name is Fleming Rutledge, you are destined to be a theologian. theologian. <laughs> uh, this, this is the best name ever, and she's amazing. Uh, uh, she looks like just the kindest, sweetest, gentlest woman in the world. The book cover has her picture. I have such a theology crush on her. This book is amazing. It's um, several hundred pages. It's dense. But even the footnotes, the footnotes are great. It took her like a hundred years to write it. Say. Um, I would encourage you to read this book. Uh, Say it again. What was the name of it again? Uh, the Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ by Fleming Rutledge. Fleming Rutledge. And she just does such an amazing work uh, on these ideas of atonement from a theological perspective uh, that uh, would benefit anyone. One of the things that she talks about, though, is the, 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 in conjunction to this passage in Colossians, how do you feel? I, I, both of you have been involved in youth ministry. Um, the bloody talk here, the, this, this, the blood of Jesus. She goes on and on in her 
writings, and I agree with her, that we've cut too much blood out of the church. Um, do you agree with that, or would you prefer less blood? I mean, is this um, comfortable for you? I, I don't have a problem with the blood. I have a problem when it's used to get an emotional response. And talking about youth camp and stuff, I know there's times that the crucifixion has been graphically explained. Um, and one, it's good for educational purposes to understand what Jesus went through and the fact that there is no way he just passed out and healed up um, because of the gore of It's of only it. a flesh wound. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think sometimes it's used almost as a tool of manipulation and not as a tool of understanding of the, the need of it or the power of it. Um, and, and I'm going to get mocked for saying this, um, but one of the things that helped me. If you say Harry Potter, I'm coming across this table. Um, Tony? <laughs> <laughs> for real? <laughs> All right, finish the <laughs> There is, and I don't know if it's, I think it's in the movies, but I know, I know for sure. Note to self, hey, never say Harry no, Potter. <laughs> no um, shame in my game. Harry Potter is a big deal for what me. What part of Harry Potter um, helped you understand atonement theory? I can't remember which book it's in, but it has to do with, um, I think Dumbledore's talking to Harry, and he's talking about the, the protection of his, his mother's love, how his love protected him. And, and he was making the comment, he said, it's in your blood. And, and just the way he was able to survive, I think it was the original attack, had, was, was this imagery. And I'm not, I'm not equating this to the cross, so please don't, don't send your hate emails to me. But it was just this imagery of love and life kind of combined in one, not just metaphor or symbolism. There, there was a, a, an incarnation to it. A, and, and I can't even, I, I told you, like the shower thing, I have this great idea in my head, I can't get it out of my mouth, but there was just something realistic. And here's this secular story uh, about love offering protection and offering life because of the mother's love and the, 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 her blood coursing through his veins um, that just helped me kind of connect the importance of the, the blood as the life source and Jesus' blood and the power in it and, and all of the things we're talking about with, with atonement. So here. you're comfortable with blood. Yes. You just don't want to manipulate anybody. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and just to help people understand it, um, I think we get in the way of it sometimes. Well, to, to your point, I think the apostle may agree with you because he just says the blood of Christ. He does not go off on, as we've all heard, the the ripping and the tearing all the graphic I'm not going to do it here but you you know with all that I, I have preached that before as an educational perspective yeah. um, and but, I think you have to understand it educationally but I do think it's manipulated so many times just to get a response and um, and I don't even think the motive is wrong or bad because I've probably done that in early youth ministry. I'm sure I've preached those hard I might have done that earlier this year. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I'm not even questioning the person's motives. I just think even some of what Paul is helping us do here is let's back up and see a bigger, broader Because the thing point is peace. On. Yes, reconciliation, right. exactly. Um, the, I'm in a, you mean, I wasn't going to go here, but you start talking about Harry Potter. <laughs> Of course, you say she's secular, and she is. 
But she would tell you that she borrowed upon a lot of literature yes. uh, and even biblical themes. I mean, all good writers Sacrificial use biblical loves themes because it's yeah. in the Bible. In fact, I've argued there's really only three stories, and one of them is the Jesus story. Hmm. Um, I don't care. Remember when we... Remember when we, when we could go to movies? <laughs> movies. Yes. Almost every movie has a Jesus character in it. Um, but, but that's a different... I'm thinking now about, of course, C.S. Lewis, this mm. wonderful scene where Aslan, mm. what is he doing? Right? He, goes, he appeals to what um, Lewis calls the deep magic when he gives himself um, and he is shaved on the mm. old altar and they kill Humiliated. him to save the boy who had committed the crime. Um, but it's not just because he committed the crime. It is an act of love and devotion. That's, he, he could have just acted and yeah. saved, but he's appealing to a sense of right or wrong that goes far deeper and more. So I always think about that. If you've not read that in the original um, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, you're really missing one of the great treasure images of what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, C.S. Lewis and his magic talking lion. <laughs> Talk, magic talking Jesus lion. Um, okay, I'm all for blood. So you now you get, we're thinking here, um, five, 15 through 17. I, uh, these keep me up at night. What, what is Jamie? What keeps Jamie up at night? <laughs> Verse 17. He is before all things, and in Him, or by Him, or through Him, whatever preposition you want to use, all things hold together. What is Jesus holding together? All of the things. All the things. <laughs> <laughs> what things? I think just, we think we have so much power, and we have so much, we want, we want to be in control of things, and um, we're just not. So the scientific ideas, I don't think Paul's a scientist, and he's not writing from a scientific worldview, but he's not stupid. He knows that when he makes a statement, Jesus is holding everything together. He may be thinking he's keeping the seas where they belong. He's keeping the mountains from falling down. He's keeping the clouds in the sky. But we could probably push that further. I think there's a legitimate application here that Jesus is the bond holding the atoms together mm. that holds the universe together this is why he is preeminent if you right. take him out everything falls apart like literally falls literally apart. i don't mean metaphorically i mean literally falling apart uh, well i thought we were heading towards the metaphorically already so <laughs> sorry literally yes <laughs> so, um and he's the, invis the invisible God made visible. There's a lot wrapped up in that. So if you think about his connection between visible and invisible and holding all things together, I don't know that you're not making a scientific statement. That the things I can't see, there are, Paul didn't understand them. He didn't have electron microscopes. Uh, but he understood that there were invisible forces, gravity, um, attraction, ions, electrons, and I'm not a scientist either, but I, I did barely make a B in a, in a, in a physics class one time. <laughs> so you get the sense of 
all these invisible forces we can't see, somehow Jesus is at the middle of this, holding it all together. So now I ask, a, a, this is a fun question. I've not put this on anyone's other, on anyone's sheet or not to look at, but so how do you make an atomic bomb? You split. You split. You divide. And what, what do you get? Destruction. Destruction and energy. Mm-hmm. All this energy. Uh, when you get, um, when you use, a, again, I don't understand the science, but a nuclear reactor to fuel a, an aircraft carrier or, a, or an electric plant, you're splitting these atoms and using them for energy. This is the same energy that rose Jesus from the dead. Right? This, this is the element of being. And I do believe Paul is making that kind of ontological argument. So when you split an atom, are you attacking Christ? Just chew on that for a while. <laughs> I was like, is that a question to answer right now? I don't think I can do it. Do your best. How would you answer that, Joni? Maybe. <laughs> it depends. I don't know if anyone's qualified, but this is the stuff that I think yeah. about at night, right? So is, is Mars, Mars is in its orbit. It's up there doing its thing. The planets or the gravity holds it. So if Jesus, Jesus is the one keeping it there. For those at home, Jamie is swinging his arm around in the <laughs> air. Like he's I'm about to take off. <laughs> I think he's counting this as cardio today. Which takes us back to, and see, it all comes full circle. It takes us back to the psalmist who says, the heavens declare your praise. Right? The sun, the moon, and the stars are doing the thing because Jesus is at the center of the thing, holding them all in place. Well, and it could also be, you know, they believed in different gods that did different things. So it could be just like, mm. hey, like, you need to abandon that. Like, it is Jesus holding it all together. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's absolutely a part of what he's doing here. I'm also interested in the idea of um, reconciliation. You mentioned it earlier. So verse 20, we talked about the blood of the cross, but it starts off with reconcile to himself. What things, Joni? All. All, all things. things. And then in verse 22, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So reconciliation is a key theme here in these passages. Um, two thoughts. One is theological and one is pastoral. The theological is probably more fun. The pastoral is more painful. If he is reconciling all things, does that mean all people? And if all people are reconciled to Jesus, does that mean that everyone goes to heaven because they've been covered by his blood? Do you see where you can come to a universalism? universalism, What's well, that word? <laughs> do you see where you can come to a belief that everybody goes to heaven? <laughs> That's all, folks. I see where someone who believes in that could read it that way. Um, but I think like God has to give us the choice to love him because if it wasn't a choice, if it's not a choice to, to follow him or not follow him, then um, like it takes out the power of the cross. Okay. So if... If the cross is universal without a response from you individually, it's stripped of power? Um, I, I think so, because it just, um, I just, like the choice has to be there. I think 
without the choice. I don't know. Daryl? No, uh, you're doing great. You're great. I was, I'm not going to argue with along. you. I would, because I, I, I don't believe in universal. I just, for the record, I, I don't <laughs> believe that everyone just goes to heaven on their own. But a universalist would say, Jesus is the one who made the choice. And that he makes the choice. A Calvinist would make that same, uh, a, a five-point Calvinist would make that exact same argument too. Jesus made the choice. You don't really get a choice. God gets to choose. So the Calvinists and the Universalists are really close together on their view of this. They both say Jesus made the choice, except the Calvinists would say he still chose some to burn in hell, whereas the Universalists would say he chose for all to be saved, and they would use this passage. Well, I think it's, um, it's, it's kind of a both and in that the power is there for all to be saved, but it's just like Adam and Eve in the garden. The, 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 the goal, in my personal opinion, was trust, not just duty and obedience. It was you trust. said duty. <laughs> duty. <laughs> it was trust that I am your life source, but he gave them the freedom to not trust it. And we, we see, and I think I've heard someone say the first step towards God may be a step away and that the love is there, but it's not f imposed upon us. Um, someone else, oh, I wish I could remember this quote. It was something like, um, God will not force himself upon you, but he may make it so appealing you can't resist it. Um, and not in an abusive way, but in, in a, I don't even want to use this word. It sounds too um, light, but in a romantic way almost, a wooing. He's trying to win us with love, not beat us towards it. And so I, I think you have the power of the cross is universal. It is for all things. But at the same time, for love to be love, it has to it has Trusted. to be a choice. It yeah. has to be. Hmm. Okay. I, I'm buying all of that. The, um, especially like when say wooing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the vacuum cleaner makes. Woo well, and, and I, the reason I go that route is because of my own personal story of hearing the cross preached with some of these other atonement theories that were God's angry. He took it out on his son. Well, okay. That makes me feel close to Jesus, but I don't know so much about his father. Um, or the God of the Old Testament, this angry God, and then here's Jesus. Did God get saved between the Old Testament and the New Testament? You know, why, why do we preach angry God, you know, when we want people to obey, and then we preach Jesus when they're hurting? I was always attracted to Jesus, but God the Father, I never knew where I stood. But the verse that always bothered me was when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father, which is he's basically saying his personality the way he treats people, the way he views the world is this. And so somewhere there's a disconnect. And I'm learning that I think a lot of it is in our interpretation of things and the way things are preached. And you get people in televangelists, people in power, or that say things that... Are you saying that powerful, rich men interpret the Bible <laughs> to... to uh to support, support and to systems keep and to sustain powerful their powerful rich men. men. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, it's yeah, not, it's I, not just white men because, you know, in the Old Testament, they're not white. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think earlier when you said we don't really understand or we can't, we can't grasp God's love, like we can't grasp that in our language when we were talking about language, mm. I also think we can't grasp the idea of wrath in our language either. Like we think of wrath in an earthly manner. Um, I just, I, I think it's, 
it's it can't be put into words. Well, the best or it can be, but the best illustration not mine. I ever heard that helped me go, oh, at least to reconsider God's wrath was when someone said God's wrath isn't aimed at mankind, it's aimed at sin. It's aimed, it's like if someone gets cancer, you're not mad at the person who has cancer, you're you're hurt of the cancer that's killing that person that you love. And so God's wrath, the story I heard was a family was camping, the kid was playing, stirred up some bees, started screaming, and the mom immediately saw the child was in trouble and, and, and pun intended, made a beeline for the child. <laughs> that was really bad. Sorry. That is a bad grandpa t- pun. Right there. But if you're the child and you see the mom running towards you, it looks like anger. Right. If you're the mom, you're running towards the child with anger, but to rescue the child from the bees. And that just helped me maybe understand wrath a little bit or God's wrath a little bit more. Um, I think maybe sometimes God's wrath at sin. It's like chemotherapy. Um, sometimes the cancer is so bad, the chemotherapy to kill the cancer would kill the person. And, and, and maybe wrath does take out people. Um, maybe there is something that we read in stories of the Old Testament that can, can leave a lot of room for misinterpretation. And I, think stuff, that's, I think that's a really good view. I also think that we always have to approach the scripture in any conversation about the Lord with humility. Mm. I can't always know what the yeah. Lord is thinking. Exactly. Uh, and his motives are pure. Mine are not. So even when I come at him with the purest intentions, so from my perspective, it's never going to reach where he's at. Mm. And his goals are different than my goals. I'm pretty sure Isaiah says, your it's ways are not my ways. Um, so that's that's one. So I think that all this is true with the um, reconciliation. Uh, I think the potential for all human beings to be fully reconciled right. is there. I think that creation, though, is being reconciled. Oh, that's, it's not there yet. It's mm-hmm. still groaning where Paul would reference somewhere else. The other idea of reconciled is more pastoral. So what's nestled in between that is verse 21, this idea of, you were once alienated and hostile. Uh, I used in my, in my translation of this, enemies. We were alienated and enemies, but he's reconciled us on the cross. So he's taking two things that were at war, so to speak, and brought them together again. Um, if this is what Jesus has done, then the ministry of reconciliation becomes the work of the church of which Jesus is the head of, right? Paul is talking here about the church, that he's the head of the church, uh, that he's the head of all things, and he's involved in a reconciling ministry. So then it becomes ours. And there's lots of Bible verses about this, Romans 5, 9 through 11, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Uh, 2 Corinthians probably comes... have this ministry of reconciliation amongst you, uh, 5, 17 through 21. So if we have this ministry of reconciliation, um, how, how out front should that be in the church? And, and we're, we're, now I'm not asking you guys to answer the question. I think that it should be out in front, but we have failed at that because we have turned reconciliation only into salvation. 
But I don't think that the ministry of reconciliation is just about salvation. Because reconciling is what we should always be about. And in our world today, there's so much to be reconciled. Discuss. Go, Go ahead, ahead Joni. <laughs> <laughs> I do think... Misty? <laughs> where's Misty? Um, I do think there's a lot to be reconcil- reconciled um, in our world today. Um, I just... I think that we we as humans want to just be right all the time rather than being humble. Um, I think we want to be right. I also think we always want to talk. Well, and... And as soon as you said that, that was where I was thinking already. It was it, we, we make everything black and white, right or wrong, dualistic. There's Watch your things. metaphor there, black and white. I know. And then, even then even the a, metaphor betrays something, doesn't it? Exactly. Right. Um, that, that it's either one way or the other. And so we just pit each other, two opposing groups against each other, and try and convince each other to come to our side or demonize the other side. Um, and And it becomes about who's most rightest, so to speak, rather than, you know, love or reconciliation. Or who can convince everybody else that they're most rightest. Yeah, and then if our side, whatever that is, wins, whatever that means, um, then you have to submit to us and bow down to our way of thinking uh, as opposed to building bridges. As if anything that the Lord has ever done has been based upon majority rule. Well, and right. see, my first thought Absolutely. is... Um, when you look at the whole crucifixion, in a way, it was Jesus rejecting everybody's sense of right and wrong because the Jews were waiting on a savior and they created this expectation of what that was going to look like and they were going to overthrow governments in Rome and stuff. And, and, and he made everybody mad. He made the Jews mad. He made the Pharisees mad. He made the, the Romans mad. I mean, he, he just, he didn't fit any of those categories. And yet somehow by making everybody mad, he reconciled yeah. everything. Right. <laughs> Maybe reconciliation is just speaking truth to where there's problems. I mean, Jesus told the truth. And it got him killed. <laughs> <laughs> so, have, no. <laughs> have you picked out the songs you want at your funeral, Daryl? Uh, I think there's, there's truth in them. I, mean, I, I made a list of all the things... Right now, as we record this podcast, our nation is in a great conversation on race. Um, We've been trying to reconcile that one for about 50 years, and we have failed miserably. Um, We're still working on it. Uh, That's one big issue, and we're not going to solve it here, but there are other areas. There's, There's reconciliation between male and female. Before there was a race conversation, does anyone remember Me Too? That was a huge part of our culture just a year ago. But coronavirus and race has pushed that to the side. But I want to tell you guys, that's still there. It hasn't gone anywhere. Well, uh, and so much of what we are given in the form of media and any outlet, their whole agenda is to make money. And so to make money, they've got to keep you watching. And so, so much of what we see is extreme. We see small pockets of extremities on either side, right, left, up or down. And, and it's easy to forget that that's not the general <laughs> people out there. And, and it prevents us from having conversations where we look across the aisle of whatever that person is that's different from me. And we realize there's a lot more in common than, than I realize. And how can we 
create reconciliation as opposed to being swept up in the emotional chaos that's, that's out there. So the, the first step, I think, in that regard is to, is to model Jesus, which is to tell the truth. Mm. So whether it's about gender issues or race issues or generational issues, I see that as a tension too. Uh, baby boomers, I'm a Gen Xer, so no one cares about us. Uh, then there's the, the millennials and Gen Z, uh, all these different groups. They seem to be pitted against each other. And then you go to media. Media pits us against each other because mm-hmm. it's a yeah, good story. Because it keeps us watching. But the first is to tell the truth. The truth is Gen Z needs the grandparents. <laughs> the truth is Gen Xers, we need to sometimes open up a little bit more about what we're supposed to be doing. We don't take responsibility for stuff as much as we should. Um, and then baby boomers, hey, baby boomers, can you get on board? Wear the mask, just please, <laughs> uh, just please. Um, you get all these different variations. Uh, the first is just to tell the truth. Stop spinning. Hmm. Everybody spins everything. Just tell the truth. And then after that is listen. Well, on the race issue, um, I am working just trying to listen because the last thing anyone really needs is another white middle-aged man telling everybody how to feel about it. Hmm. Uh, Just listen. to, And those are huge uh, avenues toward reconciliation. That's, that's the pastoral issues. And then we didn't even get to in your family. <laughs> right? <laughs> it, those issues in your family. And then also I think we could spend a lot of time. And Daryl's kind of the expert. I know he's he, um, he, this is inside expert. his uh, wheelhouse, but reconciling inside my own self. I have such a mm. duality inside of me sometimes of who I want to be, who I want people to think I am, and reconciling the fullness of Christ in me. Those are huge things. Um, a couple of more things pastorally. Jesus holds it all together when your life's falling apart. Maybe because Jesus isn't at the center of it. Um, those are all good things. Any other wrap-up items you guys have? I think um, back to verse 20, the making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, a lot of times we want to focus on that peace, but knowing that you have to go through the blood of the cross to get there. Um, so when you're thinking about like reconciling, you have to go through the muddy waters to get to the, to the other side. That's really good, Joni. This idea that peace does not, peace is free, but it's not cheap, to borrow some of Bonhoeffer's language. Um, you've, got, you've got to go through it. Jesus has already gone through it, but you've got to, you've got to square that. Well, and he, he literally surrendered his life in trust that his father could, would raise him. And so there was a great act of trust, and we're continually throughout Scripture invited to die to self and to trust God's power, the resurrection power living in and through us. Um, and that's where I think Paul is going with all of this. He keeps painting. He said, he's, Colossians, you're, you're so beautiful. You're doing so great. I'm praying for you. I haven't even seen you, met you, whatever. Don't be pulled away to these factions that, that, that may be telling you this is how you do it. This is a hoop you jump through. God, Jesus is enough. Everything he did is enough. Let that be your source of life and flow out of you. Um, and, and, and just there's such freedom in that, in the, in, to me, the way I hear it. 
Well, and then if you think of Jesus is enough, if Jesus is in us, then we are enough too. Exactly. And so much of the, this is where I was getting on the atonement stuff. So much of the cross is, is preached as a way to make you feel like you're not enough. And so you've got to do something to live up to rather than receive what was already done on your behalf and live out of that. And that piece, that atonement, um, when we were on break and Joni was checking the front door for, for someone who didn't know what day it was, um, Daryl asked me which, which theory of that atonement I lean toward. And the answer is none of them and all of them. Hmm. I don't think any one of those adequately describes all, all things. What things, mm-hmm. Joni? All, all things. Uh, <laughs> adequately describes all things, uh, uh, what Christ has done. But there's probably all of them have an element of truth to them. I mean, we did, there is crime involved. There is satisfaction involved. There is, uh, the devil is certainly trying to steal us away. Uh, What's that word? <laughs> Say it three times fast. Universalism. A, a, a renewed Adam. <laughs> uh, and, and a great example for us. All those are true, too. And so we move forward with this. Thank you for sharing with us. Next week, we're going to move on to the rest of uh, chapter one. Uh, and thanks for listening. Please like, share, comment, and also, you know, a five-star rating would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, we are on iTunes. We are on iTunes, so your five-star rating would be, uh, you know. Now, if you want to give us a zero star, you keep that to yourself, okay? <laughs> but the five stars will take. And share it on your favorite social media platform. Every click matters. Uh, you can also visit our website at fmf.life. That's fmf as in fellowship marble falls dot life. And we'll be back next week with Bible talk from under the water tower. Until then, see you later. See you soon. Hug your grandchildren, Misty. <laughs> <laughs>